But I can see her face as she comes up the aisle. Oh, it's a beautiful sight. And then as they, they say their vows to each other and look deeply into each other's eyes. And then as they are announced as husband and wife and then introduced to the congregation. I tell you, there's just electricity in the air on occasions like that. Marriages are a lot of fun. Tonight we're going to talk about the wedding of all weddings. The most exciting marriage imaginable is suggested to us in the Word of God in the book of Revelation, the 19th chapter. It is the marriage of the Lamb of God to His bride. In the 19th chapter of Revelation, you have the only occasions in the New Testament when the word hallelujah is used. It's common in the Old Testament, of course, especially in the Psalms. It is a Hebrew word that means praise Jehovah, praise the Lord. Here in Revelation 19, we have four hallelujah choruses. I think most of us enjoy that uh, hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah. There are other hallelujah choruses that have been written. A stirring arrangement of some of the words from our text tonight found in Handel's work. Notice in verses 1 and 2, the first one, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. The great harlot is described to us in the two previous chapters called Babylon the Great. It is the combination of the religious ecumenical movement and the commercial world of that time called Babylon. And uh, Babylon is destroyed by the Lord and that causes a great hallelujah chorus to go up from the tribulation saints, apparently, because it says that this was the voice of a great multitude in heaven. That is probably the same great multitude as mentioned in chapter 7 and verse 9. Those are the tribulation saints in particular. Again in verse 3 they speak. They say, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. That is the smoke of the destruction of Babylon. And then in verse 4 there is another identity, another group of people who say hallelujah, another chorus of this, the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Now in the book of the Revelation, there is some question as to who the twenty-four elders are, but the best explanation that I know of is that the twenty-four elders symbolically represent the church of Jesus Christ, the redeemed in this age. And they are joined by the four living creatures, which are described earlier in this book, in chapter 4. These four creatures are before the throne of God, and they then give the word Alleluia. And then in verse 6, 
John says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Now just let your mind dwell on that for a little bit, and think of what John is trying to describe here. He says, it sounds like Niagara Falls. Have you ever been there and heard the roar of the multiplied millions of gallons of water that go into the gorge at Niagara Falls every second? He says this was the sound of many waters, and he says also the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Have you ever been asleep at night when the lightning hit right outside your house and bam, just like that it was there? And it startled you awake? Well, he says, like the peal of thunder, the mighty peal of thunder, these voices spoke and they say, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Would you bow with me please in prayer? Father, I ask that in the minutes that we examine this text tonight, our hearts may be thrilled with that time that is coming in the future when those of us who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ are united in eternal marriage to him, the Lamb of God. Thrill our hearts with the thought of that day. And I pray that you will also give us determination that we may live now so that we will be appropriately dressed on that occasion. In Jesus' name, amen. There were several steps in the procedure of marriage in the Orient in the ancient days. The first one involved the selection of the bride. That was not customarily done by the bridegroom, but rather by the father of the groom. And even when the son was small, young in age, even a child, it was normal for the father to arrange marriage with another father. That father having a daughter who would be eligible at the same time that his son was at the age of marriage. So there was the selection of the bride. That then was followed by the payment of a dowry to the bride's parents. Frankly, I'm glad that these first two procedures have fallen out of custom in our day. But at that time, the father of the groom was required to pay a price, a purchase price, for the bride-to-be, because she became, in their society, the property of the, the groom. The payment of that dowry was the legal consummation of this marital deal. There came then later the espousal, which was the legal declaration of intent to follow through on this. In fact, at the moment of espousal, that 
young lady was considered to be the wife of that young man, although there was a waiting period before the actual consummation of their marriage uh, for at least a year, as a matter of fact. Somewhat similar to our engagement, except perhaps a little more legally binding in that culture. And then there came the day of the marriage itself, when the bridegroom would pick up the prepared bride at her home. There would be some kind of a ceremony involved there, but the major ceremony occurred back at the groom's home. So he would then return with the bride to his home for the major part of the wedding ceremony. That was then followed by a feast at which the bride was officially presented to the groom's friends. It was not uncommon for these feasts to go on for several days' duration. One of the grandest, most spectacular days in the future, as we think about the end of this age and beyond, will be the marriage and the marriage supper of the Lamb of God. Let's think for just a moment about those characters who are involved in this particular wedding that is forthcoming. In the first place, there is, of course, the bridegroom, who is said to be the Lamb. Now, in the context of the book of Revelation, there is no question, but that the Lamb refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb slain, as it were, before the foundation of the world. He is the one who is being married. He is called, in fact, uh, with names similar to bridegroom in John 3.29, Ephesians 5.25, and in several other places. Our Lord is called the one who is the bridegroom. He himself used this term of himself in Matthew 9.15, Matthew 22, verses 1 through 13, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 10, he is the bridegroom who is going to be married. But of course, if you have a bridegroom, you have to have a bride. And so we come to the question, who is the bride? The figure of the bride or the wife is used in the Old Testament of the people of Israel. In the book of Hosea, as well as in the book of Jeremiah, the people of Israel are called the wife of Jehovah. But there the language indicates that the marriage has already taken place. The marriage between Jehovah and the people of Israel took place at Mount Sinai. That was the bringing into union by covenant of these people with the Lord their God. And there were certain agreements made on the part of both on that occasion in the covenants that related God and his people Israel. Tragically, the people of Israel became spiritually adulterous and turned away from her husband to serve false gods, and she prostituted herself. The book of Hosea is written after that whole symbolic act, as a matter of fact. When we come to this particular wedding in Revelation 19, we are not talking about Israel the Jewish people being married to Jehovah. But rather we are talking about a people that have been chosen and selected by God the Father 
for union with his son, the Lamb. And of course, we are talking about the church of Jesus Christ, which is called in the New Testament his body, the mystery or the musterion in this age, the people that are being called out in this age, those who are being taken out for his name's sake, Acts 15 and verse 14. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is never pictured as an adulterous bride, but she is always pictured as a virtuous bride who is in the process of being cleansed and prepared for that day when she will be united with her loved one. And so as we think about the characters who are involved here, keep in mind that we're talking about the marriage of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, to his New Testament people, the church. That is, those of us tonight who are sitting here who are saved and born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice that the bride who is mentioned here is said to have made herself ready. And it says it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. So let's think about not just the characters involved, but the clothing that is worn on this occasion. It is said that she has clothed herself in fine linen, which is said to be bright and clean. And then John does not leave us to guess as to what the fine linen represents. He says it is the righteous acts of the saints. Some translations put it the righteousness of the saints. It is important to keep in mind that we are called righteous, or the term righteousness is referred to us in two respects. There is in the first place what the Bible calls imputed righteousness. When you and I trust the Lord Jesus Christ, we are justified by grace through faith. The word justified means we are declared righteous in the eyes of God legally. At that moment of our conversion, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is given to us perfectly. It is imputed to us. It is put to our account, as it were. All of our sin is removed. The account is brought up to zero. And then we are given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is ours forever. We are righteous in the eyes of God in our position, and perfectly so, and will be forever. Nothing can change that. That is the imputed righteousness. But there is another kind of righteousness that is spoken about in relation to us, which is mentioned here. That is the righteous acts of the saints. Not those acts that some think will gain them heaven. Any righteousness that we do that we think will gain us heaven is but filthy rags, says Isaiah. It is unworthy. These are not righteous acts that people do to try to merit salvation. But rather these righteous acts symbolized by the fine linen are those righteous acts, those good works done by the saints. That is, those who have been saved serve the Lord and as we serve the Lord, righteous acts take place. 
Some may be well known, some not known at all. God knows them all. And it is said that on that day, that which will clothe us is the righteous acts which we have done here in this world. Now notice that it says the bride has made herself ready. You and I, by our faithful service of Jesus Christ, by our good works and deeds, by our righteous acts, are making ourselves ready for this day. Now lest we think that somehow that is to our credit, notice that it also says it was given to her to clothe herself this way. In other words, it's passive in this sense. It was something given to us, a privilege granted us. And so it is the work of the Holy Spirit in us that motivates us to live that way. But the point is that as we are motivated by the Spirit of God and we do righteous acts, that is preparing us for that day when we will stand before and with our Lord to be united to Him in marriage. That is why the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 are so significant. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It never is. Because as we serve the Lord in small deeds or large deeds, as we serve Him faithfully with good motives in our hearts, then that is preparing us for that day, and we will be clothed properly. The last time we talked about this theme of the end of the age, we looked at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. When will this marriage take place? Well, it seems that it will be after the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. For at that judgment seat, you remember, our deeds are brought before the Lord and examined and purified. And in the language of Paul's figure in 1 Corinthians 3, that which is worthy is left behind as it were as gold and silver and precious stones. That which is left behind at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, which has passed his scrutiny and examination, those works of our lives that make it at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ will be what clothes us in fine linen on that day as we are united with our Lord. And so our service for Jesus Christ means something, folks. I think all of us want to be properly attired on that day. And the language here would surely suggest that what we do now affects how we are attired on that day when we stand with him. And then let's think about the calendar that's used here as these events fall out to us. In the first place, we talked about the selection of the bride as being the prerogative of the Father. That brings to mind, does it not, those marvelous verses in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians, in Ephesians, and other places, which remind us that God the Father has chosen us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, that we might belong to the Lord. He has selected the bride for his son. And then a purchase price was paid. That purchase price being 
the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. As it were, that dowry was put down to guarantee that this union would one day be consummated. You and I who were chosen by the Lord were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb who again before the foundation of the world was appointed to be our sin bearer. And so the very Lamb to whom we will be married is the one who 2,000 years ago poured out his life for us. We've sung tonight about the love of our Savior for us. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells us of the way our Lord has loved us. As the Savior of the body, he has given himself for his bride to purchase us, to make us his own. And then there is the espousal period. That time when the invitation, in terms of Christ and the church, the invitation is extended to sinners to respond to the gospel. In this age in which we live, there is an invitation of grace that is to all men, to whomever will receive the Lord Jesus Christ, to respond in faith and trust him. And at that moment that we trust him as Savior, we are espoused to him. Just look quickly back to Paul's language in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He is writing to the Corinthian church. But he says here in verse 2, I am jealous for you, he says to these Corinthian believers, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you, or I espoused you to one husband, that to Christ I may present you as a pure virgin. Now Paul is using strong language here and he is suggesting that because of their dabbling in some other things that they are running the risk of becoming impure. And he says, I remind you that when I preached to you the gospel, when you responded to that invitation of grace, at that moment I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you to Jesus Christ as a pure virgin. And so he exhorts them to faithfulness to the Lord to whom they have been espoused. You and I who have trusted Christ are at that point now. We have been espoused to our Savior. And so as time flows, this ceremony which John beholds in this prophetic view is yet to be fulfilled. When is it going to happen? Well, as you study the scriptures, it seems that the marriage of the church to Jesus Christ will occur sometime after the Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, and before his second coming to the earth. We have talked about his coming to catch his bride away, and that is another picture that uh, we can draw a parallel with in the procedure for marriage in the ancient Orient. Our Lord one day is going to come from his house to the house of the bride, this earth. And he is going to call us out to meet him in the air. And then he is going to take us back to his home, John 14, 2. 
He tells us that he is going to come and receive us to himself and take us to that place he has prepared for us. Now this wedding seems to be occurring in the future at that point when we come to the Father's house. The judgment seat will have passed at some point between here at the rapture and there when we arrive at the Father's house. The wedding will take place in heaven and will be witnessed by the angels of God and by the saints of the Lord from the Old Testament era and from the tribulation period because you see they will be slain, those who will be in heaven at that time, will have been slain after the rapture. They will not be a part of the church, though they will be redeemed as a people of God. They will not be a part of the bride, the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, they are those who are invited to come and to observe. They will be a part of that glorious scene. And then, uh, although the ceremony itself is not described for us here, he does go on to write about the marriage supper or feast that follows that ceremony. It seems in the falling out of these events that following that grand celestial marriage of the church to Jesus Christ, at some point then, he and we with him will return from heaven. In the meantime, upon the earth, about seven years have transpired. You don't talk about years in heaven because eternity is there. There is a procession of events, but not a transpiration of time. That's difficult for us to conceive of. But after the judgment seat and after then the wedding, we will come back to earth and seven years approximately will have passed. And we will return with our Lord in his second coming to the earth. And we will talk about what happens when he comes back on another occasion. But following his coming to the earth, we will begin to celebrate with him this great feast. Uh, some Bible scholars say that in fact the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, that thousand year period described in Revelation chapter 20, which we take to be as literal as uh, one can, that that thousand year reign of Jesus Christ, actually the whole thing is the marriage feast. Others say no, it's just at the beginning of the thousand year reign. But whichever way you take it, the point is that the marriage supper of the Lamb does not take place in heaven. The wedding is there. But we come back here to celebrate that wedding. And there is a great supper, a feast. And he says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That would seem to refer to those tribulation saints who are still living and who will enter into the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will share, of course, in that millennial reign of Christ. That is, by the way, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to David. It is the fulfillment of his promise to Israel that through that Jewish people redeemed, he will reign over the nations of the world. But that millennial reign also, it would seem, is the celebration of the Lamb's marriage, eternal marriage, to his bride. 
Now the place that's been prepared for the bride is described in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. It is called the New Jerusalem. It is closely identified there with the bride, the Lamb's wife, it is called. Folks, you and I have a lot to look forward to, we who know Jesus Christ. Our Lord is working in our lives now to cleanse us and prepare us for that day. Through our reading and our study of the Word of God, through hearing it, through our obedience to it, we are being washed by the Word, cleansed by the Word. We are being prepared by the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit so that one day we may stand with our Lord and be united to Him in marriage and then reign with Him forever over His eternal kingdom. You and I have a beautiful place that is prepared for us, this new Jerusalem, so beautifully, marvelously described in the final two chapters of the Bible, a literal place, a real place, which we sometimes identify as heaven, but which more specifically is the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. A place that will be our eternal habitation and headquarters. Not that we're going to be limited to that place forever. I believe that God is going to give us the privilege of exploring the whole new heavens and earth that he's going to create in the new creation. But that new Jerusalem, that's, that's home. That's the place where we're going to live with Jesus as his wife, as his people united to him forever and forever. And I hope that that is the destiny of everyone listening tonight. The last chapters of the book of Revelation clearly tell of the other destiny. That is the destiny of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who are lost. It is the eternal lake of fire that burns forever and forever and forever and forever. A place of suffering. A place of punishment for sins. How wonderful that our Savior so loved us that he gave us life and paid the price of our sins that we might be saved from that destiny and given this glorious destiny to be his bride. Someone has written, and in that holy company may you and I find place through worth of him who died for us and through his glorious grace with cherubim and seraphim and hosts of ransomed men to sing our praises to the Lamb and add our glad Amen. What a glorious and heavenly prospect and future God has given to us who have received his Son. Let's pray together. I'm aware that there may be some friend here tonight who has come to our church for some time or perhaps this is your very first time as our guest, and you do not have assurance of your own eternal destiny being heaven. You have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior. I wonder if, before we close the service, by the uplifted hand, you would simply acknowledge, Pastor, I do not have the hope of heaven. 
I have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, but I wish you would pray for me in closing because I'm giving thought to that. My heart is troubled as I ponder my future. Please pray for me as we close the service. Would you lift your hand and then put it down? I am not going to come back and get you or embarrass you, but I would like to be able to pray for you and to know in my own mind for whom I am praying. Is there one here tonight? Father, I bless you. I praise you from the depths of my heart for that glorious day that we have seen in your word. How we wish that even now we might have more understanding of those events. Oh, if John had been led by the Spirit to write more than he was. But we understand were that so, perhaps we could not wait. The anticipation would be so great. But from what we do know, we understand that our lives now matter. And so this week, may we keep that in mind and understand that we are preparing our heavenly dress for that day. Oh, may each one of us who knows Christ be on that day clothed beautifully in the fine linen which has been described in the text. And Father, I pray that you will make us a faithful people to be sharing the gospel with others so that the bride can be completed. For you still have people in the world who are to be a part of the bride, who need to be presented with the gospel, that they may respond and be saved. And we pray that you will lead us this week to men and women, boys and girls, whose hearts are being prepared by the Spirit for the planting of the seed, and then make us good and faithful seed planters. Lord, we pray for the completion of the church, for the consummation of this age, and for the fulfillment of all of your holy and eternal purpose for the redeemed. In Jesus' name, amen. In closing, I'd like for us to turn in our hymnals to 480 and sing together a verse or two from the sands of time or sinking. This is an older hymn, maybe new to some of you. The words are very beautiful. The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Let's sing together that second verse. Would you stand with me as we sing 480?